75 years after President Harry Truman signed an executive order desegregating the military and the federal workforce, diversity and integration still generate conflict over how far the military has come and what yet needs to be done. Joining me with an update on diversity efforts in the military, Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. And Alex, let's start with how things have changed. I mean, sometimes you look back and you got to sum it up. What's going on? Well, last week, a military family advocacy group called Blue Star Families held a series of panel discussions to talk about diversity in the military. One of the panelists, Ty Seduli, he, he was on the naming commission that renamed the Confederate monuments, and he's a former head of the history department at West Point, and he wrote a book called Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. So he kind of ran through a quick history of what happened since that executive order in 1948. He said that by 1951, there was only one group that was in, integrated in the military, and that was the dead at Arlington National Cemetery. The manpower requirements of the Korean War finally kickstarted it a little bit because it meant that local commanders needed to start integrating their units. The last black unit was in 1954. But in 1963, black families still had segregated housing and black children still went to segregated schools. As for the leadership, the Army had 3% black officers. The Marines and Navy had 2%. And 10 states in 1963 had no National Guardsmen who were African-American. In 1969, in fact, Mississippi had exactly one National Guardsman who was Black. It was only after the Vietnam War, when the volunteer force was created, that conditions started to get better. They needed people to volunteer, and if they didn't make it attractive enough, Black people weren't going to volunteer to be in the service. Here's retired Brigadier General Ty Seduli. When does it really desegregate fully? It's the all-volunteer force that does it. And when that all-volunteer force, after the terrible things that go on during the Vietnam War, to have an all-volunteer force means you must have equality, you must have equal opportunity. So the senior leaders of all the services realize that there is a problem with systemic racism in the military, and the only way to fix systemic racism is with systemic solutions. So the equal opportunity offices are created. All right. So if you fast forward now to 2023, it's already become a political debate in Congress, you know, over the military and some of the diversity and inclusion and equity efforts. What are some of the current problems service members and the services might be facing at this point? You're right about all those things, Tom. But a study last December by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace found African-Americans making up 19 percent of active duty enlistments in the military, but only 9 percent of active duty officers. And at a higher rank, only six and a half percent of general officers identified as black. So the Blue Star families surveyed military families who identified as racial minorities and asked them what what problems they had. And what they said is that they often felt scared in their communities and that their children were bullied in school. Here's Blue Star family's Anisha Myers. And right now in the military, retention is very, very low. You know, like 38% of military families of color feared for their personal safety because of discrimination. And almost 36% of active duty families responded that their children experienced racially and ethnic motivated bullying. And beyond that, there are issues specific to women serving in the military. And we've heard lots of stories about sexual harassment and abuse and so forth and military responses to that, Alexandra. What else are they saying these days? Those are all good points. And women are still not 
equally represented in the top ranks of the military. There was sort of a breakthrough in the last couple of weeks. Admiral Lisa Franchetti recently got the nod to be the first female chief of naval operations, which would make her the first woman to be the head of a, one of the service branches and also, one of the, and also the first woman on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. But the services do still suffer from problems with sexual assault and sexual harassment. Tai Sadouli had an interesting take on it. He talked about the way women's integration in the military was handled as opposed to the way it was handled for racial minorities. Here's Tai Sadouli. The, the one interesting thing, at least from the 70s, is when the equal opportunity offices start and really put a lot of effort uh, into ensuring that race is no longer as volatile as it was in the end of the Vietnam era and the equal opportunity expands service-wide, it fails when it comes to women. It does not put the same amount of effort that it had looked at race into women. And I think we are still paying the price for that today. And you have said, Alexandra, that some progress has been made very recently with the new chief of naval operations. But generally, what kind of progress then are people reporting? Sadouli sounded pretty optimistic when he talked about progress for women. The academy chiefs have all said that there are more women in the academies than there used to be, and more positions are opening up for women. But he also cautioned that there are still barriers to women's promotions. He said senior leaders should be mentoring younger women to help them move forward in their careers. And he said that more opportunities still need to open up. Here's Ty Sadouli again. I think one other thing to remember with uh, women serving is that it's been less than 10 years, less than 10 years since women could serve in all different aspects of all uh, the combat exclusion has gone for infantry armor. And there are still many branches in the Army that have almost no women, special forces, SEALs, um, uh, some pilots. There are, so we have lots of work to do to ensure that women aren't just tokenism in many of these branches. So we have, we have a long way to go. And, of course, there also is the question that the Army has to, and the Navy and the Air Force and the Marines and the Space Force, have to maintain their lethality, their ability to prevail over the enemy, no matter who's serving. And I imagine that context came up also. It did, and we talked about it a little bit. Uh, One of the things the Army has been talking about is their physical fitness standards. And there have been members of Congress who say, well, you have to be able to carry a 220-pound man, and that needs to be the standard. General Sadouli's take on that was, well, there should be a limit on how heavy you can be if you want to be carried. But there are standards for men and women, and not every role is going to require someone to carry anyone else. So I think the services are kind of fine-tuning what they want to ask people of physically based on what their actual job in the military will be. Sure. So then the summary is some progress has been made in decades, but some more work to be done. I think that's the summary, Tom. All right. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American 
Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have, we rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them 
and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast division. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d- d- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. it's, It's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me... Integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE, and its membership, and where we were four or five years ago, and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever 
you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.